want to thank you for listening today. This is uh, Metro Archives Back in the Day. I'm Ken Feith, Metro Archivist. Today we have a, a really great guest with us and a fascinating topic. Uh, Bill Carey is a local historian. He's a writer. He uh, writes for the Tennessee Magazine. And today uh, we're going to talk about his book, Runaways, Coffles, and Fancy Girls, A History of Slavery in Tennessee. And this it's a really interesting book, Bill. And um, how did you get started on this? Was this something that just came along, or you felt a need? Or uh, I, I did not feel the need. I, I wrote a couple of books about twenty years ago, and a number of people would stop me in the streets and say, "When are you going to uh, When are you going to write another book?" And I would say, "I'm not writing any more books. I, <laughs> I write booklets for kids now mm-hmm. for, through Tennessee History for Kids." And I wasn't going to write another book. And I was down at the State Library and Archives, and I was going to find using the microfilm some topics for my column. Yeah. I, I write a monthly column and I've written 151 of them. Mm-hmm. And after a while you start running out of material. <laughs> and so I, I, I started, I thought I would write a column about the about what was written about in the very, very first issue of the Knoxville Gazette newspaper in 1791. Very first newspaper printed, certainly in Tennessee. And when I pulled it up and started looking at it, my eyes were struck by the fact that there were somewhere in the three or four slave-related ads in that newspaper. Hmm. And I started, and I thought that was kind of strange because we don't normally think about slaves being in Knoxville in 1791. That's really early, you know? Yeah. yeah. And, and one of them was a runaway slave ad. And so I kept going and I kept looking. Newspapers at that time, as you know, were four pages and came out once a week. In fact, <laughs> all the way through the Civil War, almost all newspapers in Tennessee were four pages and came out hmm. once a week. <laughs> and so you can look through them pretty fast. Mm-hmm. As it turns out, runaway slave ads almost always ran four to eight times. And so a runaway slave ad that was first published in September would still be in the paper in November. What I found is that you could actually go through – you might skip two or three issues, and Mm -hmm. you're not going to miss anything if you're just looking for these ads. So very quickly, I went through about 10 years of the the Knoxville Gazette. Then I started looking through the Nashville Whig and so on, and I just kept going from there. So really, all these uh, you'd started just compile all mm-hmm. these um, uh, slave runaway slave ads and then about sales and all this sort of stuff. And your book, you mentioned um, runaways, coffles, and fancy girls. Tell me about the title. Is it, uh, yeah. of course, runaways? And yeah. Well, y- you think hard about a title. You're never sure if you did the right one. We we all know what a runaway is. Let me explain what the other two terms are. A coffle is a was a commonly used term in the antebellum South. It refers to a chain gang of slaves being herded from one place to another. Whenever a slave was sold in Richmond, Virginia, away from their family and forced to go to Nashville, Tennessee, they didn't do it willingly. They had to be chained together and brought um, by armed guard to Nashville. Uh, and, And this... And so they were put together, the word was called coffles. Hmm. It was a commonly used term in the South. It vanished after the Civil War. Hmm. A fancy girl um, is a, and a lot of people might say, where'd you get this definition? A fancy girl is a slave, female slave sold to be a, as a concubine. Hmm. A fancy girl was, wow. was a slave that was sold for sex and most commonly associated with New Orleans uh, uh, there might be a girl that would be sold as a, as a concubine, and uh-huh. she would be owned as an investment, and she would be a prostitute on a boat on a vessel going up and down the Mississippi River. Wow! To my surprise and dismay, I found open advertisement in Nashville's newspapers in the 1850s for fancy girls to be sold at the corner of Fourth and Charlotte for as young as 13 years old. 13. These are newspaper ads that are as clear as a bell, and they'll be on the same page with an ad for the. F- First Presbyterian Church. (laughs) 
And so, uh, I, and I'm not the first person to discover these. It's just that hopefully my book will will, will get the word out more. But but yeah, there's a lot of things about slavery that you kind of look at. And this isn't something I found in a diary or a journal. This is in the newspaper. So yeah, that's what kind of fascinates me about a lot of your work. That this is uh, all these things are published. I mean, it's out there, you know. And like you said, with the the Presbyterian ad, you know, I always see Nashville as like the buckle on the Bible belt. And then yeah. here we are, we selling slaves on the, the courthouse steps, you know, for these kinds of purposes. I mean, it's pretty amazing if you think about it. Um, you well, know. well, one thing also, uh, going back to the runaway slave ads, and, and bless my heart, my family had to tolerate me as I was digging all this <laughs> stuff up. Uh, what I did is I, I found as many as I could. I found hundreds and hundreds, uh-huh. ended up organizing them by date, putting them in boxes, and then I started pulling the data out. Every runaway slave ad contains basic information, the name of the slave, the name of the slaveholder, estimated age of the slave, appearance of the slave, clothes he or she was wearing, and then even more information that tells you stuff that you might not be expecting about the slave's mannerisms or a certain nervous tick he had. Really? Or his occupation. He might have been a bricklayer or an engineer or a doorman or a cook. Um, but also it tells you things about the relationship between the, between the slaveholder and the slave, which you might not think about. For example, I found three ads that were written by a man named Andrew Jackson. You've heard of him. <laughs> Two of the three... <laughs> are commonly known. I may have been the first to find the third ad. I don't know. But in the the biographies I found, there was one of the ads that I'd never seen. Mm -hmm. And the one that I hadn't seen, he describes a nervous tick that the slave had. Or he said something like he has a tendency. I can't remember what it was, but it's something very personal. And it makes you realize, man, he knew this guy really well. Mm -hmm. Also in that ad, I think it was that one where it, it said that the slave had once before run away and made it all the way to Detroit. Detroit. Which makes me wonder, how did he get back? I mean, seriously. Well, yeah. And it's, a, mean, it's yeah, a part. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure if anyone's ever dug this up. How did Andrew Jackson get a slave back from Detroit, Michigan? <laughs> uh, but there's all sorts of details. Um, Montgomery Bell is a name that people may have heard of in Tennessee. Mm. I found seven ads that were bought, purchased by Montgomery Bell. One of them was for seven different slaves that had run away at the same time. He had more runaway slave ads than anyone, but I found the name Harding. I found there's a lot of prominent names that you'll mm-hmm, find, mm-hmm. but I need to admit that 95% of the names I found were completely unknown to me. There's some you might see and say, oh, I've heard of this. There's a guy named Joseph Elliston. Oh, yeah. There's a street yeah. named after him. Uh-huh. But but most of the time, it's just somebody, I've never heard of this person. And and so I, I ended up compiling a huge amount of local history. And one uh-huh. other thing I'll mention, <clears throat> a lot of the places that the slaves ran away from no longer have that name anymore. And so there's a whole chapter in the book or a whole section of the book about place names that don't exist anymore, which I had to dig to figure out where this place was. Oh, I bet. Yeah. 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 Well, you know, this <clears throat> this book has a lot of information, a lot of local resource here, you know, and especially for African-American genealogy. I oh, mean, yeah. You're describing the descriptions in here. And, and just looking through the book, you uh, you mentioned the stuff you compiled, all the, all the information. And uh, you've got it back here in uh, appendices in the book, which is really, really amazing. Um, and the, the sales and yeah. then the run, you know, the runaways are fascinating. I guess uh, were they brought back? Most of them brought back. We don't know, do we? We don't know. No, I need to point something out. Mm-hmm. There are several, four kinds of advertisement related to slavery. There was runaway slave ads, slave wanted ads, where a company wanted to hire hmm. twenty slaves. There's hmm. a ton of those. Uh, there were. Um, ads related to the sale or purchase of slaves. And then the fourth category was when the sheriff found a runaway slave. 
Tennessee law required that that sheriff run an ad for each individual he found that would say, we found a slave. He says his name is Bob, and he says that he belongs to so-and-so and so-and-so county. <laughs> Most of the time, the slave would say who he belonged to hmm. and what his name was. Now, can we, does that mean the slave was beaten? Probably. Mm-hmm. Probably. I mean, mm-hmm. it, would, it probably wouldn't tell you this willingly. Sometimes it wouldn't say, but sometimes they would. What's weird is in the newspapers, you never know whether the person came forward to get that slave. Huh. Also, it would take a lot of work. Somebody would have to go through every newspaper in every country, in every state in the South to compare because the truth is most of the sheriff notices were about slaves that had run away from Mississippi, Alabama, or Georgia hmm. or on their way north who get caught here. And so you very rarely do you find a runaway slave ad and then a few months later you find the ad where they're picked up because hmm. usually they boogied out of the area. Yeah, yeah. Now, let me mention one other thing, Ken. You, t- you played a part in this, and you need to not forget that. I found an ad, and it's on the cover of the book, that was purchased by the mayor of Nashville. And it was for a slave that had run away from the corporation of Nashville. Now, when I saw that, I was really shocked. And I thought, what in the world? I thought, is this the mayor's personal slave? No. This was one of the slaves that belonged to the city. And then I started asking around, as you may remember, I worked my way to you, yeah, and yeah. you said, you need to come look at this, and y'all had at the archive the logbooks that told in great detail who these slaves were. One of the people in those logbooks is named Emmanuel, and his runaway slave ad is on the cover of this book. How about that? So we put that? together him, but this is how I found out. I didn't, you already had the evidence, and I found it over here, and so now we have even more evidence as if we needed any, that the government of Nashville, Tennessee, owned 26 slaves. 26? Yeah, they bought 24, and then for some reason they bought two more, uh, a married couple that were in that were picked up by the sheriff. <laughs> and I, I was unable to determine when they sold any of these slaves. Uh, maybe you know. No, no. It's, uh, that book is fascinating. And oh. um, I just, uh, you know, it, it looks like... Um, the city rented them, but the city actually bought these slaves. Yeah, yeah. Th- th- this was purchased. Now, most towns, Clarksville leased slaves. You'd find ads in the hmm. paper. In, in Nashville, leased slaves by the eight, by the late 1830s, Nashville was leasing slaves. Really? It makes sense to lease slave labor because they might need seasonal work. And I know that sounds funny, but what was the most basic thing slaves might do? They might scoop up bur- uh, a horse poop, which is all over the street. Yeah, okay, but yeah. apparently these slaves helped build the waterworks in Nashville. Hmm. But I have been asking around. I was up in Virginia visiting a, a museum of, sla- of, of the slave trade of in Alexandria, Virginia, a company owned by a Tennessean named <laughs> Isaac Franklin. How about that? And, and when I showed them this book and asked them, they were shocked that the government of Nashville owned slaves. He told, the, the scholar there told me that she had never heard of a government owning slaves. Really? really? So this may be, Nashville may be unique. I you don't know. You may have discovered something here, you know. Well, I mean, and it's something Nashville yeah, yeah. might consider acknowledging. This mm-hmm. is something Nashville has, has hidden for 160 years. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Nashville didn't say anything about this when they celebrated their 200th anniversary. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. You know? Well, you know, it's kind of fascinating. And I guess... Um, they would be purchased from the farms around, or they'd bring bring in, or what did you find mostly? These okay, the the slaves bought by Nashville were mm-hmm. purchased from Virginia. Hmm. They paid a slave trader whose name was William Ramsey twelve thousand dollars. He 12, went to Virginia 000. and he bought slaves. And in your logbooks, as you know, it documents exactly where they came from. They all came from counties in and around Baltimore, Maryland, and huh. Richmond, Virginia. How about and that? but the, and by the way, ninety. Five percent of the people who were slaves in the state of Tennessee came from Virginia or Maryland. 
Really? That's, oh, yeah. yeah. They, and, and by the way, 90% of the ones that were eventually worked their way to Texas and, and uh, New Orleans came from here. And so there was, <laughs> there was a – we hear the phrase trail of tears. There was another trail of tears of mm-hmm. sorts involving mm-hmm. the migration – the forced migration of slaves right down what is now Highway 70 uh, through Tennessee – but but although many of those slaves who came from Virginia to other parts of the country were taken by boat, we know that hmm. we know that for hmm. a fact. And there's yeah. a whole chapter in the book about a a business called Franklin and Armfield, which is probably the biggest slave trading con- company in the United States. Uh, it operated in like uh, in several states, and it was and the man Isaac Franklin was from Sumner County, Tennessee. He he basically had a business that bought slaves in Virginia and sold them primarily in New Orleans and Natchez. Mm-hmm. So, and this is the um, Isaac Franklin of the of the Belmont Mansion. This this is the Isaac oh, Franklin who Franklin. died and whose money later built the Belmont Mansion, yeah. and whose uh, partner, his money, uh, largely helped build what's known as Swanee University. Now. How about that? So yeah, that's interesting. So. Um, uh, so they were actively engaged as a business as far as buy, they'd buy slaves in uh, Virginia, Maryland, and then bring them here and sell. The reason it's and, so well documented yeah. is that um, they moved some by land, but they bought a boat. And then they had bought another <laughs> boat. They bought four boats. They moved almost all their slaves by boat around the Florida Peninsula. Wow. And whenever you move people on an open sea vessel, you mm-hmm. have to register the names of every human being on that ship, and that includes huh, the slaves. Really? So as a result, we know exactly how many that they moved through those boats, and the number is somewhere in the range of 13,000. 13, this one 000. company. And this doesn't include the ones that they did move by land. They also moved some in coffles by land. There was a Nashville scene cover story a fairly well done one about eight months ago about the coffles that came through Nashville. Mm-hmm. And, and it talked about Franklin and Armfield. But uh, yeah, this is another part of the book. And then the other thing I'll mention that's talked about in the book is Memphis would eventually become the inland slave trade capital of the United States. Mm. I say inland, not, you know, as opposed. And and uh, the big tra- slave trading firm there was called um, Bolton Dickens and Company. And they became a mm. huge company with branches all around the Mississippi River up and down and and but eventually they fell they fell because, out of grace because of a scandalous murder hmm. and a man named Nathan Bedford Forrest <laughs> Uh, a, a small, a relatively small slave trader took. Uh, uh, he grew as a result of what happened to them, and and for about two years he became the biggest slave trader in Memphis, and he made a huge amount of money. Uh, wow! What's okay. interesting about the slave traders is if you study mm-hmm. them and you look at the ads, it appears as if most slave tradings, slave trading businesses lasted about three or four years, hmm. and then they stopped, and then they sold the business to someone else. They retired. They couldn't take it anymore. Yeah. I don't know. You never know. You but, know? but but Forrest was the same way. He mm-hmm. he did it for a couple of years, retired, and uh, tried, and it, it, maybe for a while it looked like he might have a quiet life, but mm-hmm. he didn't have a quiet life. <laughs> no, not he hard. He then enlisted Things in changed. the Confederate Army, yeah. and and but no, he was a extremely successful slave trader How financially. Yeah. How about that? So this was really, um, I mean, this this was quite a business, and it seems fairly fluid. I mean, the buying and the selling, and then the. The companies would buy and sell, and then so this was a pretty active. Yeah, it was driven industry. largely by the fact that, and let's say, by like around 1800, 1790, slaves weren't worth 
Virginia, Maryland had a glut of slaves. They mm-hmm. had too many slaves. They weren't worth much money. And meanwhile, places like Tennessee, Mississippi, they had a desperate need for labor. And hmm. so a slave that might have been worth $300 here was worth 1000 over here. Simply a matter okay. of moving them. Yeah. And after the Nat Turner Rebellion, <laughs> it became obvious that Virginia really wanted to get rid of a lot of its slaves. And so then it became even more. And Tennessee is interesting because... For the Tennessee was a slave importing state until about 1835, hmm. and then Tennessee became a major slave exporting state. And if you think about where Memphis is on the map, since everything was south and west of us, that's why Memphis became a huge slave trading city, is because it was the last stop on the river until you get to New Orleans and Natchez. Ah, okay, yeah, okay. And so they would sell, um, they would sell to the, I guess, the lower south, you know. Yeah. And it doesn't, but from what you say, really. Um, the the slaves around here would come would not come we didn't buy much from the upper south we would sell uh, lower south we would sell to states south of us yeah and Alabama Mississippi Georgia and things like that you see it the phrase Virginia born slave uh, Virginia really? actually you see the phrase Virginia born Negro in huh. a lot of the ads for sale Virginia born Negro that was a way of saying he's a good slave this or is something. a good one uh-huh. uh, uh-huh. but um, there was something I was going to mention um, uh, I lost my train of thought. About um, um, skills, it seemed like some of them make skills like blacksmiths and. Yeah, I, I what I did in the book in the book and in the appendix is after I pulled all these slave ads, I began looking at them and I think there were about ninety or hundred times where in the runaway slave ad it would it would say what the occupation of the slave was. Hmm. Most of the time it wouldn't, but sometimes it would, and it was hmm. fascinating. Carpenter comes up about thirty times. Really? Yeah, bricklayer, plasterer, painter. Uh, a couple of times engineer, but if you think about it, okay, let's say that you have a runaway slave who's a carpenter, okay? Well, that means that that slave was hired out because there's mm-hmm. no way there's no way that a man would have needed a slave to do that much carpentry work. What that meant was uh, the you. slave had been gotcha. trained as a carpenter and he had been farmed out to a local construction company and he was making money in that regard. The, fu- the hiring out of slaves was very, very common. There were some people who might own 40 slaves mm-hmm. and farm out 30 of them to other people, hire out 30 of them. Wow. So wow. that was – and that's why, to be honest, as I, as I researched this book, the idea – there's a lot of people who think that slavery would have eventually faded anyway in the mm-hmm. South. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe it would have, but you, you have to realize a lot of slaves – were farmed out. There were cotton mills in Nashville in the 1830s that were 75 percent manned by slave labor. Good night. 75 percent. We we know uh, there was one uh, who I taught. You can find there's advertisements in the paper where they purchased it, and a few weeks later, after they after these three men bought the farm, bought the the cotton mill, they run an ad and say, "We need between 15 and 20 uh, Negroes to work here." And when they say, it took me a while to figure this out, but when they say Negroes, they mean slaves. Slaves. They don't mean free. Hmm. They don't mean – because a lot of – and you hmm. might say, well, how do I know that? Well, one of the reasons I know that is when the railroad started building, they would run ads that say, we need 500 cool. Negroes to build the Nashville and Chattanooga Railway. Well, obviously, they meant slaves. Yeah. And yeah. and and when, when they started building something called the Tennessee State Capitol, <laughs> William Strickland ran ads saying, we need Negroes to work in the, um, uh, in the quarry. One of those Negroes died – and when he died, they said a slave died, a Negro belonging to so-and-so has died. Hmm. And by the way, that hmm. also is a discovery in the book. I don't think anyone has ever acknowledged that a slave died in the construction of our state capitol. No, I mean, you've uncovered some really fascinating topics, well, historical facts in here, you know. And it's really kind of fascinating the way you've pulled this out, you know. Um, 
And so we kind of use, so really, it, we use slave and, and Negro sort of interchangeably in a way, I guess. At that time, they did. Yeah. One other thing mm-hmm. I'll mention, and this, this may also be a discovery, in 1836, the state of Tennessee, prior to like 1840, frequently had um, lotteries to raise money mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. build things and, and to do things like create roads, dredge rivers. And we always try to dredge the river to make it easy to navigate. Um, m- most of these lotteries, cash would be the prize. Okay, hmm. but at least in one case, 1836, there's a long list of assets that were given away as part of the lottery. The, the most valuable assets were a plantation, a farm, some land in Dyer County. Whoever would want that, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I just offended all my friends in Dyer County. But at the very bottom of the list are five slaves. There are five Negro slaves. Now I, I can't tell from reading it whether these five slaves were given away in the lottery together mm-hmm. or as one. But if they were given, excuse me, separately, if they were given away separately, three of the five were children under the age of eight. Whew. So I showed this to several people who are knowledgeable, and they said they never, and with state government, state law, they said they'd never seen this before. Wow. So I, we absolutely know that the state of Tennessee gave away slaves in a lottery. We don't know what became of them, and we don't know whether they were given away separately or together. Well, it, I guess from that, you, it'd be hard to determine whether or not they're a family. You know, but well, you know, yeah, man, yeah. woman, and the eight, around forty and three kids ah, wow. seems seems logical. But yes, yeah, that's exactly yeah. right. Uh, so yeah, there was a lot to it, and and uh, I will say one other thing. In addition to pulling all the, uh, to, to reading a lot of old newspapers, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. somewhere along the way, I, I realized I needed to understand this better. There were a few books I bought mm-hmm, that are mm-hmm. out of print. One about the slave trade in particular. It was called Slave Trading in the Old South, and I bought it at a used bookstore and. It didn't cost me very much. It's book. It was written in 1931, and there was so much detail in this book. Yeah, wow. uh, that was where I learned about fancy girls, for example. How about that? And that yeah. was where I also found about seven or there were several first-person accounts of slavery that I didn't know about that are Tennessee mm-hmm. connected. Hmm. Uh, and I suspect you may have. You ever heard of J.W. Uh, Logan? L-U-G-U-E-N. No, I hadn't heard of him. Is he, uh, he wrote is he a, a player book. in this. Yeah. Well, he was a slave who was raised in uh, Murray County near the uh-huh. Little Bigby Creek, and he escaped <laughs> and wrote a his uh, a biography, an autobiography that was nationally that 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 made national news. Wow! How in the early that? 1840s, 1850s, and uh, so I never heard of war. Him. I mean, this was before oh, the yeah. war. He wore this country. was an influential, uh, unwritten uh, slave account, slave narrative, and he he recounts as a child. Live, he grew up near the uh, place called Station Camp Creek, mm-hmm. and uh, at some point along the way, his uh, slave owner had had a mortgage, I guess, too far, but they, he had to sell some slaves, including him, and the slaves didn't know they were being sold. And he oh, describes gosh. in some detail. How in the middle of the night they they were they heard screaming and they were woken up and the, and they immediately put the men in chains to to get them in the coffle because they knew the men were going to be trouble. Yeah, and he had to and this little boy he was eight at the time uh, had to walk alongside the coffle, which would have taken him from Station Camp Creek down to Bigby Creek in Murray County, and that they would have had to come right through downtown Nashville. Wow, on a coffle. and and he describes this in some detail, and I'd never heard of this person before, but uh, his autobiography is. On the internet, hmm. uh, and I found that How through this book. That? So it's, it's, it's. Uh, what it's, a great catch! You know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it came from it, the reference came from this other old book. Yeah, yeah. That's a great catch. Well, you know, this is a fascinating book, and um, do you have it? Uh, I mean, it's, you've got it out there for purchase and all that. Um, cool. Yeah, and I've got a whole bunch of uh, appearances this summer at bookstores mm-hmm. and such. Mm-hmm. And uh, great. 
Where's your next appearance? You're going to... Uh, I think I've got one coming up. I have a website called clearbrookpress.com. Clearbrookpress.com. Yeah, I've got something coming up at uh, Parnassus, and I'm speaking at the Mecklemore House in Williamson County. Oh, yeah. Okay. And I'm speaking at the Franklin Rotary and the Brentwood and the Franklin Libraries. And I think the Southern Festival books, I'm kind of adding them as we go. Yeah, yeah. You've and, got quite a... Quite a- line up there, you know? Yeah. Yeah. yeah this one, What's weird about this is when Fortune's Fiddles came out nearly two decades ago, mm-hmm. it, it was such an obvious, oh, get this as a present for so-and-so. They'll love it. Yeah. And and this book, on the other hand, people aren't sure if they want to buy this yeah. as a present for somebody. It's, <laughs> yeah, no, huh? it's very heavy stuff. <laughs> it's a heavy book. It so is. We, didn't, we didn't get a big Father's Day boom from this one. Like, <laughs> Fortune's Fiddles still gets a Father's Day boom. That's kind of neat, you know? Yeah. yeah, I, yeah. And, and so I, I, but I do hope that in its own way, it'll It'll be important and it'll be accepted. And and the other thing, just little things. Last week was June 19th and people across Tennessee sent emails to each other about, hey, this is the anniversary of the freeing of the slaves. Mm -hmm. That's not true. In Tennessee, we freed Hmm. slaves in February. And I have a – toward the end, I have several pages about this. Again, unknown history, but we we got rid of slavery in Tennessee in a statewide referendum, I think February 22nd, 1865. Now, that doesn't mean there's anything wrong with June 19th. But we should know our own early. story. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and because that's when people were freed here, and that's when slavery ended here, and that's when people hugged and cried here. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We just don't know that. We don't know that. Yeah. And that's interesting that it's February in a statewide referendum, so it's not something the military imposed. It's a, a yeah. statewide thing. Yeah. We had a, a yeah. rather forceful governor named William Brownlow, mm-hmm. and he basically got the legislature together and said— Apparently, at gunpoint, you will. We will get this on the ballot. They put it on the ballot, and as you know enough about Brownlow to know, I don't think the voter turnout was very high <laughs> because all Confederates or Confederate sympathizers were not allowed to vote. Of course, women were allowed to vote. So, but anyway, it did pass, it which passed, makes yeah, I think Tennessee yeah. is the only state that did away with slavery by statewide referendum. See, that's really cool. I yeah. mean, nobody knows that. No, that's I, a, that's really fascinating. And the, the Emancipation Proclamation was ex- we were exempt from that here, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and 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 our slaves were gone by the time the Thirteenth Amendment passed. Curiously enough, slaves in Delaware and Maryland were not sla- slavery remained in Maryland and Delaware longer than it did here. Huh? How because. Not that there were very many in, in Delaware, but there sure Still. as heck were in Maryland. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. How about that? Well, you know, that's fascinating. And it was in uh, February of 65 yeah. that we actually did that. Yeah, that's I found cool. editorials in there talked about in the book. And, and uh, it, it was there were, it was like an editorial every week for about, for about three weeks leading up to that. And then it was over. But the other thing, and I go about this in the book, uh, when did slavery actually end in certain parts of the state? It yeah. very it, that was when the slavery was made officially done. Mm-hmm. The truth is, it appears as if slavery, as a as in practice, was actually done away with during the six months or so late late seventeen sixty three to through seventeen excuse me eighteen sixty three to eighteen sixty four. Hmm. Uh, remember, I told you the sheriffs would run an ad whenever they would arrest a slave. Yeah. Yeah. What happened is during the war, the number of ads that they were running skyrocketed because slaves were running away like crazy. Wow. Yeah. And in the fall, in September of 1863, the, sl- the, the sheriff in Davidson County at one time in one issue had 37 separate ads. Good night. They couldn't combine them into one ad. You may, this must have cost the government a lot of oh. money. The entire newspaper was runaway, was sheriff founders, runaway slave. And then the next issue, there's zero. And the issue after that, there's zero. And there's never one again. Logically, so I think that's te- yeah. I that think that's you? the end of slavery. I think what happened is the sheriff said, "I can't do this anymore, and we don't even have room for these people, and I can't feed them." And so I'm guessing somewhere around there is when they they started doing other things with the slaves, and mm-hmm. maybe. 
but also that was almost the exact time that Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation. Even though he exempted Tennessee and it didn't go into effect for three months, who was in control in Nashville? The Union Army. The Union Army, yeah. So I think that's when Nashville ended slavery. And then if you look at the newspapers through the other parts of the state, uh, it appears as if slavery ends every time the Union Army won a victory from that point on. Like the, it, that's it, it, fascinating. It ended Bill. in Chattanooga yeah. after November of 63. But get this. There were still having chancery court slave sales in Sevierville 10 months after they did away with slavery in Nashville. <laughs> Sevierville. Sevierville. You know, there you, aren't very many African Americans in Sevier County to this day. Yeah, I, I but 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 there were slave sales in Sevierville, Athens, and Knoxville in the summer and fall of 63. So that doesn't that doesn't make any sense. You know, I've never thought of East Tennessee particularly being, you know, a slaveholding area, you yeah. know, but that's that's fascinating. Well, yeah. what was happening yeah. is as Virginia was losing the war, there was they had somebody had just built a railroad connecting Virginia to Knoxville. Hmm. Guess what they were sticking on that railroad? Slaves. Slaves. They were selling, getting them out of Virginia, and so there were sla- there were railroads packed with slaves being sent to Virginia to get to, to Knoxville. And you can find newspaper ads, we've got another shipment of slaves from Virginia, Virginia born slaves for sale. Uh, get them while you're hot. Uh, and, <laughs> yeah, but but let me ask you a question. What type of money do you think people were using to buy these slaves? Probably Confederate money, I Confederate guess. Confederate money. So, uh, yeah. So yeah. that's going to be gone soon. They, they weren't using money. They, they, even by that time, they were saying, we're going to use Confederate money. We're not using gold money. <laughs> and that, of course, and all that went away. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. That was all that gone. Yeah. You know, this has really been fascinating, Bill, and I appreciate your time with this book. Uh, you know, you've, you've uncovered a lot of really interesting things about Nashville and the slave trade, and, and uh, you know, it's incredibly prevalent. And then all the runaways, uh, and just looking through your book, man, you've got some really fascinating things about the institution here, you know. Um, yeah, is this... Um, I mean, what would be your takeaway from this? You got anything you can? Oh, just with that, it, uh... just that slavery was far more embedded. I, I when, I've mm-hmm. already had a few people that I offended deeply with this book that have <laughs> taken me aside and drilled me. And one of the things they'll say is, "You're wrong. Most people were against slavery. Only ten percent were for." The problem with that is this book proves that, for example, let's take banking. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The banking industry was pro-slavery. Period. There's no other way to because every time slaves were sold. Who was standing there to finance the purchase of those slaves? People didn't pay cash for slaves. It was like buying a car. You paid 50% down and, or, or even 30% down. And the, the ads will tell you that. They'll say, we'll take 30% down and you'll pay payments for two years. That means huh. there was a bank involved. Also, every time somebody bought land, if Ken Feith was looking and bought the 40 acres next door, what did you use to buy that land as collateral? Like slaves. Use your slaves. You didn't use your own house. You didn't. You probably did slaves, and you probably collateralized the younger slaves because they're worth more money. You might collateralize six-year-old slave or a three-year-old slave or an eight-year-old slave. You don't tell them. There's no reason for the slaves to know this. Okay. Oh, okay. Okay. But you might. But through collateralizing a, a, a young slave, you could raise a lot of money. Well, if the if then two years later the price of cotton goes down. You're out of luck. And guess the bank comes and guess what the bank does? It takes those slaves slaves. who didn't even know. And so, so banks were totally tied up in this and, and, and almost all sectors of the economy were, all I can say is the one thing that's very clear is if you were an abolitionist in Tennessee in the 1840s and 1850s, you had to have guts (laughs) because we, we, we seem to think that, oh, there were people, there might, I'm sure there were people, but they were breaking the law. They were breaking the law every much, every bit as much as somebody who deals drugs today. 
gosh. was breaking the law. There's an example I talk about in the book that no one in Nashville seems to know about anymore. A guy in Cincinnati came to Nashville, tried to help three slaves escape. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He got caught as he was heading out of town. They arrested him, threw him in jail. His name was Richard Dillingham. Oh. Died of cholera at state prison two years later. At the state prison? Yeah. So they're deadly serious about this uh, yeah. runaway slave. Yeah. And guess where he's buried? Unmarked grave. We don't know. Somewhere under the corner of 15th and Church. You're kidding. Is there a marker? Of course not. No. No, he's just some dead abolitionist. So that's that was the fate of abolitionists. So when we give people tour guides through Nashville and we say, this was a well-known stop on the, on the Underground Railroad. That's a lie. It's not a well-known, yeah. There's no such thing. But also, the Underground Railroad was a network of of people breaking the law. It wasn't a series of houses. <laughs> Do you not understand? And so, but, but we Nashville have always, we, we kind of painted a picture of ourselves as being a progressive city, which doesn't really fit if you go back that mm-hmm, far. Mm-hmm. We just yeah. need to admit this. <laughs> and and we probably need to put up a historic marker that says, by the way, the corner fourth in Charlotte was the center of the slave trade. Slave Thousands market. of people were sold here, including children as young as 13 years old and sold yeah, for sex. Yeah. I mean, seriously, we probably need to acknowledge this. Put, put that out there. Yeah. 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 So, that, But that's, that's fascinating that it's not that Nashville – we just don't talk about it. But Nashville didn't necessarily turn a blind eye to this. They said, okay, if you're going to – Deal in if you're going to take the slaves out of here and run away, yeah. that's illegal, and we're going to prosecute that. Oh yeah, the law against and, and you probably uh, knew this, but the law against uh, it was illegal not only to help a slave escape, to write anything that be can, it could be construed as inspiring a slave to escape hmm. in any form or fashion. Write, draw anything against the law. I'm not sure how that fits with the First Amendment. Well, <laughs> okay, but that was yeah. in the law, and it's and I uh, there's a man named um, Eddie uh, State Library. I can't remember Eddie's last name. Anyway, he showed we 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 pulled up Tennessee law from 1858 and read this. It's an incredibly detailed law, but basically. The, the act of, of writing abolitionist literature was illegal in Tennessee after about 1832 or so. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So there, was, there were abolitionist newspapers before that time. There was one in East Tennessee, but, but they, they, they had no impact at all yeah. After, yeah. after this. So. You know, that's fascinating. You talk about this and, and the way the banks and, I guess, lending institution, all, yeah. all, that's, all the monetary thing is tied into the slave trade here. So uh, that's really fascinating how you could use collateral. Oh, yeah. Slaves is collateral, you know. And, um, yeah, yeah, I can see how coming down here and, and being an abolitionist, that's, that's a threat to an entire system. Oh, yeah. You know. Yeah, so yeah. It, it, our economic system was based on it. I'm not – I mean, for example, let's say that, Ken, you and I are magically go in one of those movies and we go back in time and we become we're, – we're in Nashville in 1840s and we want to do things the right way and we decide we're going to start a company, mm-hmm. okay? Are we going to hire slave labor? No, of course not. You and I would never do that, would we? <laughs> that, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. We're not going to turn a profit because other people were hiring slave labor. Entire mm. factories would hire half of their laborers were slaves. Now, ask yourself, why do they have any – if you have half of your laborers as slaves, what does that do to the wages you have to give the other half? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. You know? Okay, but if you look – but ask yourself – there's advertisements in here for all these different types of companies, whether they were in this or that, in manufacturing or mm-hmm. iron or this or that, that, that would hire slave labor. So by hiring slave labor – you're affecting the, the wages you have to give other people. Yeah. And so it would be very difficult. I found ads for mom-and-pop restaurants that hired slaves. Hotels. All the hotels in Nashville had slaves working there. The Nashville That's Inn had a slave. And and so, you, you know, you kind of did that. And that was one of the big differences between the economy of Nashville mm-hmm. and the mm-hmm. economy of 
uh, Wilmington, Vermont or someplace. Yeah, it was, it yeah. was just they didn't have slave labor there. So it really was a huge difference. That's fascinating, Bill. It really is. Um, yeah, this, this whole thing is, is um, it's a very complicated – it is a peculiar institution, I guess, and it's very complicated, well, you know. Uh, and this is a great book. I appreciate you bringing it in today, and, and this is fascinating. Well, I, I want to appreciate – I want to thank you guys because I don't know if you all realized until now how much keeping that log safe that, – because what you have there in the archives, that log, is mm-hmm. that, that may be more priceless than you realize. That may be the only record of any local government in the United States ever owning slaves. That's wild. Yes, yeah. y'all need to make sure you keep that under lock and key. That, <laughs> we'll put it if, away now. <laughs> if we ever get that Nashville Museum, that's got to be under glass. Oh, yeah. 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 Well, it's a great book, and I appreciate you using that resource, you know. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, yeah, this is cool. Um, well, any, anything you'd like to leave with us? No, just if anybody wants to know any more about the book, it's at uh, www.clearbrookpress.com, and they can also see about the Fortune's Fiddles and Fried Chicken book I did all those years ago. I can't believe it was 20 years ago, 20 kid. years ago. Well, and, and talking about that, we were talking earlier, and you were the first person to speak at the library when it opened. Yeah, by a complete yeah. freak, fluke of luck, I was actually a first on the agenda on that Sunday day all those years ago. Yeah. And I, uh, yeah. Which is really cool, you know? Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. It's nice I'm All still right. alive. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, uh, you know, I encourage everybody to take a look at that website and um, check out Bill's book. It's a great book. And uh, we appreciate you listening today and have a good day. 